Amen. Amen. want to have a brief time of prayer before we uh, go to uh, the Word of God and the sermon. And uh, looking at things to put in here. Um, and as we were preparing for the service this morning, there, uh, the doorbell rang here. And, you know, we're not allowed to have in-person services, but it was one of our new neighbors asking if we did. And talking to me about what's going on in their family right now. And he said, would I said, would you like me to pray? And he said, yes. So we're going to do that for them. But we want to just read this psalm as we begin to say our, our time together in prayer. So please, just listen as I do this. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Father, the words of David, King David, still ring true today. They still remind us of our need for you and of our need for redemption and that we must come to you for you alone, Lord, are the one we are to worship. And so, Jesus, we, we pray today and we say thank you. And we confess that we don't always live up to what we say. And you know that because you came and lived as a human. You know the struggles we have. But we also know through your word that if we confess our sins, you, Lord, are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. And at the cross you have done that. And so we stand before you, Lord, forgiven and free. And in the holiness and righteousness of Jesus, we are able to come to you, Father, and be in your presence. Because it is not through I, but through Christ in me, that I am accepted. And I am grateful. And so, Lord, hear our prayers. We, we live in the middle of needy people. Even what I heard this morning about a, a serious health issue with somebody in a family that has just moved here. And they're reaching out. They're, they're frightened. They're afraid. They don't know. I don't, we don't know if they know you, but they know that this church knows you. They know who we are. So, Father, I pray for them. I pray you would hear their prayers. Be, have mercy on them. I pray, too, Father, that they would also 
reach out to you in this time and embrace you and put their trust in you for this temporal thing that's happening right now, but not even realizing there's a greater need for them, eternity. So hear our prayers, Lord. Many things we could be praying for right now. You hear the silent ones as well as the spoken ones. Praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I first came to, uh, came alive to faith, I know they can say that in different ways. Some people call it being born again. Some call it born from above. Um, we came into a faith relationship with Jesus. We, and when that happened, we were living in, on Vancouver Island in a town called Nanaimo, B.C. Uh, and the local pastor, a local pastor who was just getting a, a, a church started there was our neighbor six doors down. And, and he helped us walk through these steps as God got a hold of us and we wanted to know what to do next. He helped us through a first prayer. And our lives were changed forever, forever transformed. We, we ended up attending uh, th- his church uh, for the first seven years of our, of our Christian lives. Six of them before this, the building you see on the slide even existed. That was that kid in 1987, 86, 87. Now, our first pastor was a real character. He had a laugh so loud that it would startle people. We, we went to a movie once, and, and something hit him funny, and he laughed so loud the people in front of us jumped out of their seats. Um, he, he had a great sense of humor. He loved life. He's also a really good preacher. And, and as a brand new Christian, both of us actually, but as brand new Christians now in a church that we knew believed the Bible, I sat and I absorbed everything that he could tell me. Time didn't matter. It was a preacher's dream. <laughs> Time didn't matter. If he went long in his sermon, it just meant that I'd learn more about Jesus. Sweet. Not everybody felt that way. And one day, the sermon went long. It went quite long. And one of his kids stood at the back of the auditorium, waved his hands like this, and went pointing to his watch. I think, my memory serves me right, the whole congregation gasped when they saw our pastor's whole countenance change from jovial and relaxed and excited to serious and really annoyed as he stared at his kid. And as the kid realized what was happening, the color drained from his face, and he realized he was in big trouble with Dad. <laughs> My first pastor was, may have been a really laid-back guy, but he had his limit. That was the first time that this, this particular child had been in trouble with him. But it was one of the breaking points. Have you ever reached that? Have you ever reached uh, a point with your, maybe if your children, child raising, where, or your parents have told you this, when you say, enough, that's it. You, this, this is going to be dealt with. 
it's probably happened to most of us, either on the receiving end or, or on the giving end if we've raised a family. The portion of Philippians that we're in today, there's an, e- an enough moment in the text for Paul. Throughout Paul's ministry, he had been hounded by a group of people who were set on making people work for Christ's gift of grace. Work for something that was free. And these people could not accept that God would freely give salvation to those who simply believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they added their own ideas and requirements to that message, that gospel. And it was sort of a Christ plus this or that. So it's a Christ plus theology. Almost every letter Paul writes to these churches, not just the Philippian church, almost every letter he confronts this issue in one way or another. And now, here, Paul is going to take time to address it in the hopes that the Philippians will be ready to defend themselves against this attack on their faith when it comes. And it will come. Jesus told us that we might have, he came, that we may have life and have it to the full. John 10.10. 10. The life Jesus wants for us is not a heavy, burdensome thing. It's it's joy-filled life. I mean, how else could the Apostle Paul rejoice in a prison or under house arrest? The, the life of Jesus brings us a, a joy that, that gets us through times of trouble. And, and Paul knows there's trouble coming in the Philippian church. Today, he's going to encourage them. But he starts out with a warning about this particular group that's going to su- And the warning beca- is there because th- he knows this group will just suck the joy out of every congregation. The, the, please turn to Philippians chapter 3 and we'll uh, read the scripture for today as the first 14 verses of the chapter. Philippians chapter 3. He starts out saying, Further, my brothers and sisters, Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I lost all things. I consider them garbage 
that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is, what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Excuse me. Wow. So, he starts out, he's, he wants to encourage them, but he has to get this warning out first. So he starts out with this word, further. Uh, uh, further, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And then tells them about the next thing, oh no. But further, actually, in literally, is, it should be translated finally. But if you put the finally there, it might lead you to think that Paul's wrapping things up. Uh, but he's, it's better understood as, oh, there's one more thing I need to talk about. That's this. Now, anyone who's been around church knows not to take the pastor too literally when he says, oh, I've just got one more point. <laughs> because uh, he might just be getting warmed up and give you another 20 minutes of preaching. <laughs> Never happens here. Now, in common speech today, what we'd probably say would be something like, so, even though I'm repeating myself, I want you to rejoice. He said, it isn't a hardship for me to say it. I don't mind saying it again because it'll help, it'll make it stick with you. He doesn't want them to despair under trial. And so reminding them that they can still have joy even through trials sets up what he wants to say next, which is, watch out. There's a big trial coming in the form of this group focused on working on God, for God's favor. In other letters, he calls these Jewish background Christians Judaizers because what they want is everyone Jew and Gentile, to observe all things Jewish. In particular is this issue of circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant God made with Israel. You find that in the Old Testament. It actually became a shorthand for saying the people of Israel. They referred to themselves as the circumcision because the other nations didn't do this. Became a nickname for them. And so he gives the Philippians... A, three, a threefold warning. He says, watch out for those dogs. Ooh, Paul, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? Well, we love our, our pets today, don't we? In the first century, they did not generally keep dogs for house pets. Dogs were despised creatures. They were considered to be unclean. And what happened is it became a common slur an insult toward the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. Because they treated them as they believed God 
had treated them as their enemies and outside the covenant. And Paul actually turns this back on them, these, these Judaizers, because he says, these guys are like dogs. They follow me around, snapping at their heels, at my heels, barking out this false doctrine. You've heard the expression, dogging somebody? That's what it means. Um, they say they, they're always snapping at his heels like a coyote following a runner in Stanley Park. And Vancouverites will understand that reference. And he's saying, though people like that who rely on work for their right standing with God are actually the ones that are outside the covenant. So he says, watch out for these dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. The word literally is translated workers of evil. The Judaizers thought of themselves as good workers. You know, working out their salvation. But because they're putting all this confidence in what they do, in, the, in their works, trusting in their own merit, they aren't working good. They're actually working evil and they're spreading this false hope in the congregation, false doctrine. And the last thing he calls them is, and they would have just snapped their heads back at this one, those mutilators of the flesh. He's referring to circumcision, but he doesn't use the normal word to describe circumcision. He uses this Greek word katatome, which literally means cutters. And that's the term that they used to describe the, the cutting of and mutilation of bodies that a lot of the pagan worship had as part of their practices. You remember from the Old Testament the story of Elijah and uh, having a battle with the 450 prophet, prophets of Baal. And when the prophets of Baal were trying to summon Baal to, to, to take care of the sacrifice and bring down fire from heaven, nothing was happening. And they got more and more worked up and they started cutting themselves as if that would somehow help and show their, their small g God how sincere they were. Didn't work. Didn't help. And Paul, you can hear Paul's anger seeping into this, really. Uh, this is one ep episode, even in some of his other letters, you really understand he's really not just a little irritated by this. He's really annoyed at it. Because these people were spreading the false doctrine that circumcision was necessary for the Gentiles in order to make them full Christians. If they didn't have circumcision, they weren't complete. They weren't under the covenant. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. Because the truth, and Paul says it, he says, you know what? We are the true circumcision. We are the true covenant people of God. True circumcision is a spiritual work. It's having a changed heart. It's an internal thing. It, it's not an external sign. What it is, it's a cutting off of sin. The cutting off of the life of sin. Paul explains it uh, in a little, expands on it in his letter to the Colossian church. Uh, and he says this, he said in chapter 2, In Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off, put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him 
through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism symbolizes that inward circumcision. The image of dying to the old self and being raised to new life with Jesus through God who raised Jesus from the dead. It's a spiritual work. It's not a physical act. It really was. Uh, it was an Old Testament ritual which was the sign of that old covenant and it has been replaced by the new covenant that Jesus talked about. A personal response to God. We serve God by the Holy Spirit. We boast in Jesus and, and we don't put any confidence in the flesh because confidence in what we do is like, is like trying to gain God's approval and acceptance by working for it. It can't be done. If it could be, if I could do it by working for it, guess what? <laughs> I'd boast about it. So would you. We would. We'd take credit for it. And when Paul wants to show how crazy this argument is, he says, if anybody had a right to boast, it was probably Paul. He says, it's probably me. His boasting. He said, first of all, four things to do with his heredity, who he was. Circumcised on the eighth day. That was the day male children were brought to the temple and presented to the Lord and the circumcision was done. You know, God wasn't, that wasn't by chance. Uh, we found out, medical research has told you, the body's resistance to infection is at its peak eight days after birth. So they knew. That's the day when his male child would be taken to the temple and, and dedicated. He was of the people of Israel. He was full-blooded. Both his parents were Jews. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the smaller tribes. But Benjamin was the tribe that remained faithful. They, they were the holy, the Jerusalem, the holy city was in the territory of Benjamin. And King David, when everybody else deserted him, Benjamin stayed with him. And as another point, which I'm sure didn't get lost on Paul, Israel's first king was from the tribe of Benjamin, a man named Saul. Paul's namesake, because Paul was known as Saul of Tarsus before he changed it to Paul as a new creation in Christ. And last, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's the fourth one. Uh, he, it, what he meant by that is he spoke both of the ancient languages fluently. He knew Hebrew and he knew Aramaic. He was a scholar. He was a poster boy for a person who was trying to do everything right. He was faithful to his culture. He had not rejected his culture in order to go to the Gentiles with this gospel. Now he had three things that he had a privilege to be as well. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest sect in Judaism. And they devoted themselves to keeping the Torah, the law, meticulously. They would even, if they were walking down a path and, and, a, and a woman was coming toward them, and they were fearful that they might somehow be tempted to lust after her, they would close their eyes as they walked and they would fall. There was one, one of the writers described them as the blind and bruised Pharisees. But he was a Pharisee and he had shown zeal 
for God. He wasn't rejecting that God at all. But his zeal was misdirected. He chased down and he persecuted the early church, the early Christians, until Jesus stopped him cold on the road to Damascus. And he faultlessly observed the law. Now, if anybody could be considered right or righteous with God based on the law, he's saying, it would have been me, folks. It would have been me. But now, what does he say? Verse 7. He says, but he considers these, all these gains, all these good things, as losses for the sake of Jesus. He considers everything a loss comparing to no compared to knowing Jesus Christ. He lost them all that day on the road to Damascus. And, and then he gets really strong with his language. He says he considers the gains garbage, rubbish, compared to knowing Jesus. Wow. There's a song, When I Survey the... the, the, the when I Survey... The wonderful cross, the wondrous cross. It says, my richest gain I count but loss. That's where Fanny Crosby got that idea. This word translated as garbage here in the New International Version, if you're reading it, is actually in some of the translations, including the King James Version, is translated dung, human waste. That's what he thinks about all of what he used to do to try to gain God's flavor, favor. Any and all confidence in working for acceptance is rejected. It may as well be muck. That's pretty graphic, but it does show how strongly Paul feels about any practice or any observance that isn't rooted in what Jesus did and his sacrifice on the cross. Why? Because Paul's willing to lose them all in order to gain Christ. No human effort. Nothing we do. It's already been done by Jesus. Our righteousness comes through the gift of God in Christ. Through faith alone. That is the only thing that will exonerate us when we stand before God. Jesus' sacrifice, his blood. Quoting another, Fanny Crosby, him, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Paul wants that more than anything. More than anything, he wants to know. He says he wants to experience the power of God in the resurrection. The power that's at work in us. That power is the same power that raised Jesus and raises us from, this, from the death of sin to life in him. And then he says something unusual. He says, I also want to know the power of the participation in Jesus' suffering. Uh, and the word he uses 
is koinonia, fellowship in that. Paul is going through a lot of struggle. He's being persecuted. He's, been, he's under arrest. He has been thrown out of towns. He has been beaten. He's been stoned and left for dead, recovered and walked away. He was suffering as an apostle because he represented Jesus. He considered that his suffering, he thought of it as, as if it was an extension of the dying of Jesus represented in his human body. And when Paul says, at the end of that, he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection and, and the fellowship of his suffering. And he says, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, he is not doubting that he's going to be there at the resurrection. It's Paul's way of, of describing what many preachers call uh, the now and the not yet. We have come to know Jesus. We have been transformed here and now. We are not who we will be ultimately. That's the not yet at the end of time. And he's looking forward to that. Right now, we're saved. We're in the process of being sanctified. But he, the phrase he used, by the way, when he said this about participating, he said it could be actually dis literally dis uh, translated as, I want to know the resurrection from among corpses. And he's saying, you know what, folks? If you do not know Jesus, you are the walking dead. You just don't know it. But we are in that process of being made more like him, being sanctified. We're saved. And we're becoming more and more like Jesus if we're listening and walking with him. But we still got that old nature nagging at us, tugging at us, tempting us. Paul is looking forward to the day when our salvation will be complete. We will be completely Christ-like. And we look forward to that perfection, but it won't happen here. It won't happen until we are one with Jesus at the final judgment. And Paul also knows that that path to eternity for him is uncertain. He, he, might, he might be martyred. There was a very good possibility he would be martyred. And then, but his immediate future is not certain. And as it turns out, we believe that he actually was released from this house arrest while he was writing Philippians. Because some of his other letters, events in them date after the writing of this one. But he knows and he holds on to one fact. Jesus took hold of him that day on the Damascus Road. At that point, his long-term future was secure. And so is ours on the day we receive and put our complete trust in Jesus Christ. And I think that's why Paul says, not, not that I've already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal. He, he's in that now and not yet time. So what does he do? Does he just sit there at house arrest and just wait for something to happen? 
No. Absolutely not. He says he presses on to do what Jesus called him to do. Two of my favorite uh, scripture verses help us understand Paul's attitude to, uh, to this. So the first is from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29.11. God is saying to his people, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Some translations, a hope and a certain future. The second is from the, his letter to the Ephesian church, letter of Eph at Ephesus. Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We already have established the relationship. The things we do is the outworking of that change that has taken place in us. When God calls us to himself, he already has an assignment prepared for us. A, a calling, if you will. Each, is, each person's is different. Certain things we share in common, of course. The way we conduct ourselves, the way we, we watch what we do, the way we treat people, all those things that we learn as the Spirit teaches us. So Paul finishes with, I think, what is one of the most encouraging and motivating statements in, in anything he has written. It's one of my favorites. Just about jumps off the page. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He hasn't completed what God has, has mapped out for him. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal, which is, he's repeating what he said a couple of verses earlier. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What a marvelous phrase. Called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And we don't have any idea what prize awaited Paul, but we do know that Paul heard the call of God and he answered. And that no matter what happened, Paul knew where he was headed. No matter what happened, Paul chose to remain true to what God had called him to do. He pressed on, and he tells us the same thing. Press on. Don't give up. No matter what is happening right now, no matter what is happening right now, rejoice in the Lord. What about us? What about you? God has called us to himself. He calls us to leave behind that, that pushback and rebellion against him and the sin that we had before. He calls us to come into fellowship with him fellowship with the living God. The same love that sets us free, the same love that opened eyes to see is calling us all by name. 
Paul Balash said in his song, the same God that spread the heavens wide, the same God that was crucified is calling us all by name. God has called. Have you answered? Please join me in prayer. Our Father, my, I praise you and thank you that you have given these writings, these scriptures to us to show who you are and what you have done and that we might know you and know you, Jesus, crucified, buried, and risen, that we might have new life in you. My prayer today, Lord, is anyone listening to this broadcast would know for certain that they have given their life to you. And it comes by saying, Lord, I give everything to you. I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you came and paid in a penalty for my sins so that I could be right with God through you. I receive that into my life. And I ask, Lord, that you would lead me, teach me, guide me, Encourage me. In Jesus' name. Amen.